I was thinking through the book of Acts and what I would like to try to do with it. And I thought about, I went up to Washington a couple weeks ago and I put into a phone, which was not my phone, it was my daughter's phone, the address. And the first thing it does is it shows you this snapshot, right, of the whole trip. You kind of leaving then Interstate 5, lots of Interstate 5, and then where you end up. And then when you hit start, it then says, okay, go 30 feet and take a left. So what I want to do today is give you that first glimpse. Here's where we're going. It's the 30,000 foot flyover of the book of Acts. So you have in your mind the whole story. So when we're taking 30 feet, take a left. Once we get into the trees, you'll understand the forest, all right? So that's my goal tonight. Just a quick, we're going over the whole book. My hope for you as we go through the book, and the reason why I have this piece of paper right here is to keep me under four hours. <laughs> because if I'm just like in the book of Acts talking to you, it'll be like midnight, I'll be like, oh, chapter four, let's go. Oh, wait a second, what time it is? So if I have an outline, it helps me to be like, oh, you shouldn't talk about that right now. Okay, I won't. So that's why I have a piece of paper. My hope though, as we go into Acts, and many of us have been through Acts, we've studied Acts, we've read Acts, we have a certain, what I call, worldview of Acts. It's your presuppositions. We all bring presuppositions to things. Uh, but those are healthy and unhealthy. And here's what I hope. There's a study, and I've mentioned this before, it's by two guys, um, Gary Hamill and C.K. Pralahad. And they did this study on monkeys. They had this room, they put four monkeys in it, in the middle of this room was this pole, pretty tall pole. At the top of it was some bananas. These monkeys went into the room and they kind of check each other out, do their, th their monkey thing. And then one of them kind of noticed, hey, there's bananas up there. We like bananas. So it starts to climb this pole to go grab a banana. It gets very close to the bananas. It reaches out to grab a banana and then they sprayed it with freezing cold water. And it screams and yells and climbs on the pole and goes into a corner. Well, the other three monkeys are like, hmm, that's interesting. And after a while, the second monkey decides, well, I still want those bananas. So it climbs up the pole, almost grabs the banana, sprayed by freezing cold water, comes down, runs off in the corner. Third monkey is like, hey, I can do it. They may have failed, but they don't know who I am. So it starts climbing up, same thing. Fourth monkey, same thing. They each try it a couple of times, and then they all just give up. They stay in the little corners, not wanting to try anymore. So then they grabbed one of those original four monkeys. They pulled it out. They put a fresh monkey in that. They set him in there. It kind of looks around, makes friends, does whatever. And then after a while, it notices there's bananas up there. What are these fools doing? I'm getting me a banana. Goes over to the pole. Before it can climb that pole to get the bananas, the other original three monkeys grab that monkey and are like just screeching at him. No, dude, don't do it. Right? Like, oh, Okay. And so it kind of like, well, that's weird. Waits a little while. Tries it again. No, dude, don't do it. So finally, the new monkey's like, okay, I guess I can't do that. Then they did that to the second monkey. They pulled out the second original monkey. They put in a second new monkey. Same thing plays again. He kind of checks things out, goes to the pole to go climb up the pole to get some bananas. The other three monkeys won't let him do it. So then they pull out the third monkey. They pull him out. They replace him with the new monkey. 
Same thing plays again. He checks out the other monkeys, notices the bananas, goes to climb the pole. The other three monkeys grab a hold of him, won't let him go up. They do it with the fourth monkey. They end up with a room full of monkeys that will not climb a pole to get some bananas and they have no idea why they shouldn't. Just some old monkey told them that they shouldn't. I think too often Christianity is a lot like that. Why don't you do that? Some monkey told me. Some old monkey told me I shouldn't do it, so I'm not doing it. And what happens then is we're not expectant or open to what our king could do with us today. So my hope is that we're not monkeys. My hope is that we come to the book of Acts saying, Jesus, speak to us in the 21st century in Grants Pass, Oregon, for the way that we're supposed to be. Speak to us. Because I still believe that God's word is quick and powerful and alive and relevant. So that is my hope that we come to God's word with this kind of thing. And when you look at the book of Acts, there's two major ways that people look at the book of Acts. One is descriptive, that it just describes some things that took place 2000 years ago. And the other is called prescriptive, that it prescribes for you and me as Christ followers today, how to do church. And there's these debates on what is it? Is it just telling us the events that, is it historic? Or is it actually a manual for the way that you are supposed to do church? I'm convinced it's both. It is truly a historic book that Luke is telling us the events that took place from AD 32 to about AD 64. He's telling us those events. Here's what took place. But it's also laying out for you and me, this is how God works. This is how God does things. And he does that so that you and I will have hearts that get on fire. It's how he ends his gospel, Luke chapter 24. It's so that our hearts get on fire and that we are expecting God to do the same thing with us today. And so I think it is descriptive, but it's also prescriptive. This is how God works. Expect him to do it again. And Luke is really in this book centers on the work of God's spirit. 55 times in Acts, Luke mentions God's spirit, baptizing, anointing, filling, tongues, prophecy, teaching, guiding, stopping, preventing over and over. It's, it's over twice a chapter, God's spirit, God's spirit, God's spirit, God's spirit. And I think I said on Sunday in most services that the third century title to this book is wrong. It was, it's not authorized. They didn't put titles on books back then. But we have the Acts of the Apostles. It should not be the Acts of the Apostles. Stephen's used mightily. Philip's used mightily. Prophets are used mightily. There's all these other people that get skipped over. It should be the Acts of King Jesus through his spirit in the church. I think that's the right title for this book. There's tons of ways to outline it. Some people do Peter chapters one through 12. Paul, chapters 13 through 28, great title, or great outline, I should say. Um, some people do, uh, verse eight says, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And you really see the book move out that way. It goes Jerusalem, one through eight. Uh, then it moves out from Ju there to Judea in chapters eight and nine, and then uh, Samaria, and then, so great outline. But today for our flyover, I have a different one. And it kind of breaks the book down in its major kind of stories, the epics, all right? So we're gonna jump in. I call chapters one through chapter six, verse seven, 
blast off. And we'll look again at verses one through five because they're good. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. They're told to wait. Why are they told to wait? I think they need to be connected to the head. I think sometimes we move out so quickly that we're actually connected to our head. And then because we're not connected to the head, we run around like a chicken with its head cut off. And we do all kinds of stuff, but we don't actually do the kingdom because we're just, do you know that? Have you heard of um, Headless Mike? Anybody heard of Headless Mike? Yeah, I've got a couple people. The chicken that got its head cut off, but enough of its brainstem was left. So the, the farmer, he's like, this is like 50 or 60 years ago. He's, he's getting all his chickens and to eat them. Cuts off all the heads. You know, they're running around doing their thing. He, he gets them all. He's like, I'm missing a chicken. I thought I had like 30. And I only got 29. Next morning he goes out. Headless Mike is just standing there. He's like, what in the world? Next day, still standing there. He's like, what in the world? So he starts feeding with an eyedropper. Turns out there was just enough of the brain left that the vital organs could continue to work. He took it like on, he made millions off that thing in, if in today's d- dollars, just showing off the headless chicken that was still alive. And he would feed it with a uh, like uh, eyedropper. And then it drowned one day because he fed it too much. <laughs> the demise of Headless Mike. Sometimes, hey, it's Google, man. It's your friend. <laughs> Sometimes I think church is like Headless Mike. What are you doing? I don't know. Why are you doing it? I don't know. Well, get connected. So these guys, they don't know what they're doing. For 40 days, they don't know what they're doing. So Jesus says, listen, wait and get connected to the head. Wait and get connected. Isaiah 40, 31 would say, those that wait on the Lord will mount up with wings. You're gonna have vision. You'll be able to see, they'll run and not grow weary. They'll walk and not faint. That's what I want. I want vision. I don't want weariness to my walk. I want that. And it comes from waiting and getting connected. And the moment Jesus says that, hey, wait, what do these guys say to him? So when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He says, wait, they say, when? When's the kingdom coming? When are you coming back? Aren't we the same? I had people Googling me like, and emailing me, hey, Matt, there's the blue, very rare blood moon last night. What does that mean? I wrote back, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. It's a rare blue, I don't know, man. What am I supposed to make something up? I'm sure I could find something in Ezekiel if you really wanted it, but it would be just me making it up. There's so much of that. And I think we be, almost come accustomed to it. Remember Edgar Weisenart? I mentioned him. He's my favorite. 
NASA rocket scientist engineer turned prophecy teacher. Beware of engineers that wanna teach prophecy because there's gonna be calculus and charts and just weird stuff. So he wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. And it didn't happen. So then he wrote a a book the next year, 89 Reasons. And he wrote a book the next year, 90 Reasons. And he went on for four years that way. It's insane to me, right? Jesus says, wait. And they're like, when, when, when? I love his answer. It's not for you to know the times or seasons. People that get all wrapped up in them, I say, you know what? Jesus said this to me. It's not for me to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but I wanna receive power from God's spirit so I can be his witness. If I think about prophecy and I think about that, and I'm very into prophecy and I like that kind of stuff, but I really boil it down, I say, how does that change how I share the gospel with unbelievers? I don't know if it does. Maybe it might give me a sense of urgency, but I hope I have in my heart the fact that I found Treasure Island and I wanna invite everyone with me. I hope that's why I wanna share the gospel. Because Paul would say, it's the love of Christ that compels me to share. Like I got the greatest treasure in the world. Join with me. Don't you know what I've got? You've got to join with me, right? So Jesus says, come on guys, your job is to get out there and share about me. And so in chapter two, they are anointed with God's spirit. He comes in Pentecost and 3000 people get saved. Think about this for just a minute. There's been 120 of you, of you just going along. So maybe you came from a different church and maybe there was 120 on a Sunday. And so you're kind of used to 120 people coming together. You've been with this 120 for a long time and you're enjoying it and you know each other and everything's great. And then all of a sudden in one day, you go from 120 to 3,120. And you come in the next Sunday and someone's sitting in your seat. And you're like, what in the world happened? Everyone knows that's my seat. What is that moron doing in my seat, Right? Imagine this. I mean, just the chaos that would happen to this congregation. That had been 120. They've been doing really cool. And all of a sudden, man, everything's changed. So what are they supposed to do? Right? Necessity. <laughs> Build a building. Well, there's one solution. $62,000. <laughs> uh, oh, man, this is bad. So... There's a saying that necessity is the mother of all invention and that high heels were invented by the first woman who was kissed on her forehead. She said, not again, not again. So what are they gonna do? Well, some really, really brilliant things happen. Look at this and we'll get to this and we'll pick it apart, but it's verse 42. So they just went boom from 120, average size of a, Congregation in America is 72. So right in that kind of neighborhood and they go mega church overnight. Massive mega church. Chapter two, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul. That is my prayer. Man, we'll talk about that. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. 
and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Brilliant, just brilliant. Many of you know my story. I grew up in a church that was um, not, not the best church. Uh, it's called Gospel Outreach. Uh, we couldn't have a TV, for instance. We didn't celebrate any holidays. Uh, there was a period we went through, I call it the little house on the prairie, period, where we just dressed up, literally, like my, we have pictures of my mom and my sister in bonnets. So that's, we were, we were, we were those people. So I have a soft spot in my heart for them. No holidays, no Christmas tree. We could, I didn't have a Christmas tree for most of my childhood. Uh, what was really funny, first year of Edgewater, we're at that little office up there at Babe's Bakery, remember that? So we were, we, that was our office. I came in there one morning, right around Christmas time, five months into Edgewater. I walk in, we have this Christmas tree. They're taped to an, uh, uh, an ornament, the very, like head level was Jeremiah chapter 10, verses one through five. If you know that text, that's the text that they use to tell you Christmas trees are satanic. So it's just right there. And I remember looking at it thinking, oh no, they found me. <laughs> They're here. <laughs> Where are they at? They've got me. All right, so, so just crazy church. But you know what? I will never forget about that church their radical generosity. So I was moved that the place we lived in this communal place down, it's called Carlotta Ranch in Northern California. It was shut down by the government. And they came down, the guy that actually picked me up goes to this church now, he's awesome. He, it, station wagon came, picked us up, my family, my, my mom, uh, my uh, three siblings. And, and I remember being packed, it was back in the day where there was no seatbelts, 1976, packed in the back of this, big old La Bamba station wagon with my head like pressed against the back glass, like looking out, like that was my spot. All right, 10 hours later, you know, I'm just like, oh, that's the way it was back then. So I, you know, just came up here, lived at the A Street House of Jesus Christ, which is right across from Hole and Hole Mortuary on, it's, it's for sale right now. I've always thought, man, I should try to buy that thing. Nah, I don't want that. So just this massive house, it was all these people just lived there, just communal living. And it was, everybody worked and they just threw all their money in a pot, essentially. Just here it all is. And it was distributed out. It was exactly like this right here. I grew up in this. And there was like, nobody had money except for one guy. His name was Mark Henderson. And he was from Texas. And his dad was an oil man. And so he had a monthly check that would be sent to him, depending on how much money that oil well made. He had like parts of all these oil wells. So there was a week out of the month where we'd be eating steak. And then it was back to lentils. And you knew uh, the check just came in. <laughs> Things went fat for a little while, then they went skinny again. And he bought this new car. He wanted to be like, you know, Mercedes. So he bought a Mazda 323, brand new Mazda 323. And I remember back then just thinking, that is the most awesome car in the world. Wow, it was all clean. There wasn't a stain on it. And he was so generous with that. Ah, anyone could take it just all the time. And I was sitting at the table this one time and what, what they would do at A Street House is they would go out on Interstate 5 and they would drive from like Gold Hill up to like Wolf Creek and they would pick up anyone hitchhiking. And then they would bring them down and feed them and clothe them and share the gospel with them. And the next day, the people would just be on their way. So that's what they're doing. And this guy was driving Mark Henderson's brand new Mazda 323. And he was pulling into the, the 
exit 53, and there was a hitchhiker right there, and it was raining, and he was dirty. He thought, oh, I can't pick him up. He'll put a stain in Mark Henderson's brand new car. So he didn't. So he comes back to A Street House, and I'm at the ta- this big there, this big giant table, and I'm there playing my games, whatever a uh, six-year-old does. I'm playing there, and the guy comes in and gives his keys back to Mark Henderson, and he says, man, there was a guy up on Interstate 5, and he was hitchhiking, but he was filthy dirty, and I didn't want him to stain your seat. Mark took the keys, gave him right back, and said, you go pick up that guy. That stain on my seat will be a trophy. It'll be a trophy for me. I've never forgot that. The radical generosity of God's people, even the most just ganked out church in the world, but the people were so generous, and they were so kind, and they took all their stuff, and they shared it. And I think that's why there's such awe with the people. You did what? I sold my car and gave it away. I sold my chariot. I sold my horse. Why? Because someone needed to eat. Whoa. Whoa. It's awesome. It's awesome. I'll never forget it. In chapter three, you've got Peter and John. They go into the temple. There's a guy just crippled. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I to thee. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he stands up and starts walking. And then it goes viral. The gospel right here just goes viral and things go crazy, right? 5,000 people, 5,000 men now get saved. And then the people, the powers, the religious powers are like, wait a second, this just got crazy. What are we gonna do? So they grab the apostles, they throw them in prison. They let them out, they preach again, they throw them in prison. Then they beat them. And I love this. Like you get to chapter five, verse 15. Just what's happening here? So they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits and they were healed. How radical is that? That ministry only works where the sun shines, I guess. Like the clouds out. Oh no, I can't be healed. I'm in Grant's Pass. It's foggy. I can't be healed. I mean, it's just like crazy. Wow, what is this? And then you've got Peter, verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter, the guy that denied Jesus three times, the guy that, lead, the guy that cursed and said, I don't know this man. Peter said, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed. <laughs> Every time Peter preaches the gospel in the book of Acts, he makes sure and blame the people in Jerusalem for killing Jesus. Every time. Hey, by the way, you killed him. All right. It's just like classic. Hey, but did you know you killed him? All right. <laughs> you killed by hanging him on a tree. So you've had the denier now becoming this bold, incredible, transformed believer in King Jesus. It's amazing, right? But then chapter six, there's a problem. Now in those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews. Hellenists were Jews that had taken on the Greek culture. 
rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So now you got a problem. What's interesting to me is this. You got widows that aren't eating. How does God solve that problem? In the Old Testament, you'd see these miracles happen. Elisha's fed by birds, bringing him food. Elijah, I should say. Elisha is fed by a widow whose um, meal and oil never run out. The people in the wilderness that are wandering, God feeds them with manna, with birds. But how are the widows taken care of in the New Testament? Is it a miracle? Kind of. It's through God's body. It's now God saying, it's your responsibility. I've given you, I've been generous to you. Now you be generous to these people. I'm going to use you, right? So this problem is addressed correctly. And look at verse seven. Big problem, could have divided the church, could have caused them to be absolutely powerless, but instead they address the problem, work through the problem, biblically, right, brilliantly. And what happens out of the problem? The word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. You're taking care of widows? That's cool. I can get down with that. I'm joining you, right? Because they addressed the problem well. It's not problems that are ever the problem. The problem is when you don't deal with the problem. But when you do deal with the problem well, there can be glory and great things that come from it. So that's the first, that's blast off. We've got boom, rocket ship's gone, right? Now you've got from chapter six, verse eight through chapter nine, verse 31, I call it blowback. Stephen, one of these seven that are chosen to feed the widows, he's brilliant. Chapter seven, I think is probably one of, I'm gonna say it's the best message in the book of Acts. The most, it might be the longest, I think it is actually the longest and it's just brilliant. He's brilliant, preaches this brilliant message. And because they can't shut him up, because they can't answer him, what do they do to him? I'm gonna kill you, all right? You know when you won, when they're like, I just gotta kill you. And we can't win the argument, so we're gonna kill you. So they stone him. Um, and then you see Saul, that it becomes Paul. Saul now comes out. So chapter eight, verse three. Saul was ravaging the church. This is blowback and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Skipping over to chapter nine. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogue at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So the, the, it was the religious people, the priests, the Pharisees that began the persecution and essentially they hand the baton to Saul and he runs like no one else. He's like, I will, I will stamp out these heretics. In ministry, do you expect opposition? In the kingdom, if we wanna really follow Jesus, if we wanna bring Jesus to Grant's Pass, do we expect opposition? I think we say we do, but when it actually happens, when people gossip about you or lie about you or weird things happen to you or there's discord or misunderstanding, we're like, what in the world? How is this happening? Hello, <laughs> you have a real enemy. 
And so we get discouraged by it. I think we should be encouraged by it. Because when that's happening, guess what? You matter. You're making a difference. And the enemy is saying, I gotta stop that. This thing's growing too big. This thing's getting out of control. I've gotta put a stop to it. We should be partying when we have misunderstandings. We should be partying when there's opposition because we're making a giant difference, right? So you know the story. Jesus appears to Saul, knocks him on his can. He believes. And then there's this interesting little thing that happens to him. He begins to try to figure out, where do I fit now? So look down at verse 19. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon the name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, (laughs) but their plot became known to Saul and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Maybe it's Damascus, I'll share Jesus here. Nope, not gonna work. All right, get out of here. And when he'd come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the disciples and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit and it multiplied. So Saul gets saved and now he starts to say, I wanna be used. So in Damascus, he starts sharing the gospel and sharing about Jesus and it stirs the whole pot. And they're like, dude, you're causing problems. You gotta get out of here. So they send him to Jerusalem and in Jerusalem, they won't even let him in the church. They're like, no, dude, don't let that guy in. He finally gets in the church, starts to share Jesus. People wanna kill him. They're like, bro, you gotta get out of here. Ever feel that way in church? Like, where do I fit? Where do I fit? Where's the place for my gifts, right? Whenever he goes, things work out well, but wherever he's at, man, it's hard. So they keep sending him away. And Saul, later to become Paul, he'll never fit with the Jews. He'll never fit with them. He wants to. He'll say, man, I'll go to hell. I'd be accursed if I could see my brothers, the Jews get saved, but he'll never fit with the Jews. He's a foot trying to find his place on the head. He's out of place. So how do you know when you fit well? I think there are two things you gotta have in play. It's how you feel about it and how other people feel about it. Both of those matters. So I'll give you an example from my own life. Um, uh, Sunday mornings, I'm usually super excited. And I will come in to the house from my study, kind of reviewing my notes, praying, just getting ready. And um, 
I'm just, I'm bubbling over because I'm so happy to see you guys. And so excited usually about what I get to share. Uh, this one day, I come into the house. My wife was there fixing a meal, had breakfast on the table. Kids were all there. It was a little bit chaotic. And when I'm really excited, I like to sing. And so I'm coming in the house, skipping in, singing just loudly. And so my wife, bless her heart, who is now you know, dealing with the kids and all that kind of stuff was like, honey, do you have to sing so loud? And so I said, sweetie, I will not apologize because I love to sing in the morning. And my wife said, so witty and so very smart. She said, if you heard yourself sing, you would apologize. <laughs> I just went touche. I won't do it anymore. That was really brilliant. <laughs> All right. I love to sing, but guess what? No one else wants to hear it. It brings me great joy. It brings no one else great joy. See, both have to go hand in hand. You know when you fit. Saul was like, dude, I'm here. I'm gonna share the gospel. Everyone's like, we hate it when you do this. I'm gonna kill you, right? So he has to go away. It's not gonna fit, bro. I know you really wanna do this here, but every time you do it, man, it doesn't work out. You gotta find somewhere else where you fit, where it will bring joy to them. And we'll see when he's sent to the Gentiles, oh, there's great joy. The people are like, yes, this is water in the desert. Oh, thank you. To me, it's joy squared. You will know when you fit correctly, when you have great joy, and when the people around you, when you're doing it, have great joy. That's the fit. And yeah, I think you see that exactly with the apostle Paul. They fit. And the mature person says, I get that. I get that. And I actually want feedback from people. Do you, is it joyful when I do this? Actually, can I be honest with you? Yes, please do. The mature person says that because I want it to be joy for me and I want it to be joy for the people that I do it with as well. Man, that's the fit. That's the right fit, right? So this is blowback, happens. Now Saul gets saved out of the blowback. God, it's my judo theology to me, same thing. Right, right here, you see it. Now we have chapter nine, verse 32. I call it breaking the barrier. So there's been a barrier that was erected probably falsely, and we'll talk about this when we get into the trees, that excluded the Gentiles. Even though Jesus had said in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, go into all the world and preach the gospel, there was still this wall that was there and there was a barrier to the gospel going out to the Gentiles. So chapter 10 is the hinge. Peter is hanging out by the coast and he gets hungry. Man, I'm hungry. And so he's hungry and he's up there and it's probably a sunny, beautiful day. And he starts to snooze and God's like, now I can talk to you. I'm gonna use your appetite to talk to you. So the sheet descends out of heaven and in that sheet, there's all this food, all these animals that are not kosher. So in my mind, I always see like, you know, a snake or a crocodile or shrimp or crab, yum. Like all this kind of stuff. And, and God says to him, hey, rise, kill and eat. And Peter says, no, Lord, I've never eaten anything that's unkosher, unclean. I'd never do that. And God says, don't call unclean what I've cleansed. Rise, kill, and eat. No, Lord, I can't do it. Three times it's repeated. And the sheet is taken up out of the way. And then Peter's like, what in the world was that? 
At the same time, these people come from Cornelius, a guy who had a similar experience with an angel, and they've come to the house to fetch Peter to bring him back. So all this kind of sets up what's gonna happen with Cornelius. Peter's like, hmm, that vision, when the angel that appeared to you, it's saying something to me, I can figure this out. So he starts to preach. And before he can finish the message, Cornelius and his household are filled with the Holy Spirit. He's like, wow, these guys are saved. So in chapter 11, Peter knows, uh uh-oh, I just hopped over a line that's gonna make some people be like, what did you do? So in chapter 11, he's like, literally, you guys were there, right? You guys saw what happened. I didn't do it. I was just sharing the gospel and then God did something, right? You can just see him like trying to back up, like what just happened here, right? From chapter 11 on, Peter pretty much disappears from the book of Acts. Makes a cameo in chapter 15. And what you see take place is this. James takes over the church in Jerusalem. Peter had been the dude in Jerusalem. James takes over. And James, in chapter 21, when Paul comes back, James says this to Paul. Hey, Paul, I need you to go to the temple and show that you're a good Jew. Now, if you put all those pieces together, and we'll try to do more of this, I'm just giving you a broad picture. Here's what I think happened. Because of Peter breaking down this wall and allowing the Gentiles in, he lost his voice in Jerusalem and he's out. A lot of times, people that break down walls, the first one that's through the wall, if you would, knocks it over, they're often like, hmm, I don't know. And then later on, they're like, oh, that was right. I think that happens to Peter. I say that because sometimes I think we'll look at the book of Acts and we'll be like, it was the perfect church. Really? Be careful. Chapter five, you got Ananias and Sapphira. There's a problem. Chapter six, we saw the complaints of the Hellenists versus the Grecians. So you know there's some complaining happening there, right? You've got, whatever happens to Peter, he just seems like he's kind of pushed out. You've got Paul and Barnabas. They argue so much with each other at the end of chapter 15 that they can't do ministry together anymore. They're like, forget it, man. You go north, I'll go south. You go west, I'll go east. I'm getting away from you. So we can look at with these rose-colored lenses, the book of Acts, but it's not true because the church is always full of broken people. And whenever you clump a bunch of broken people together, guess what's gonna happen? You're gonna break glass. And the mature people say, that's okay, it's okay. There's no utopia until King Jesus returns. There's no utopia, right? It's been rightly said, if you find a perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it. It's absolutely right. There's no such thing. So it's okay. It's okay. We're gonna learn great things from it, but we have to force this book to be perfect or the church, I should say, in Acts to be some model perfection because it's not. It's full of broken people. And yes, there's great things God does through broken people. That's the whole story of the Bible. God does great things with broken people and the glory goes to him where it rightfully belongs, right? Okay, so then from chapter 12, verse 26, all the way up through chapter 16, verse five, building the kingdom. Chapter 13, there's this church at Antioch. It becomes the center kind of of the Gentile church. There's a bunch of people there, prophets, teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who's called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they are worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent 
them off. So now these two guys go out and it's the first missionary journey of the church and really of, of Paul. And they go out and they share the gospel in this big kind of loop. It's awesome. It's totally cool. Here's what's amazing. God chooses Paul, who's an ultra nationalistic Jew. He'd be the guy wearing, make Israel great again. He's that guy. And he's the one that then God says, no, you're not gonna make Israel great again. You can go out to all the other nations and you're gonna share the gospel with them. He's that guy. It's amazing to me. The last guy you would ever expect to be the one that goes out on this missionary journey is the one that God says, I'm gonna use you to do that. I love how God does that. I think about myself. So the worst event that happened to me in high school was speech week, freshman year. I hated that. There was nothing I hated more in high school than getting up in front of people. I prayed, amen, someone says, yeah. I prayed to get sick. I prayed for a tsunami. I prayed for an earthquake. I prayed for anything, anything to get me out of that. And then the week would come and I would always position myself behind this big football player, just like, you cannot see me, right? And then what made it worse was these thespians would be like volunteering, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go. Prancing up there, giving great eye contact, perfect pitch, excited, you're laughing. I'm just like, you're gonna make it so much worse for me. Oh, I'm gonna look like such a moron now. Cause I know I'm gonna be up there and like shaking, not looking up one time, mumbling my words. What'd you say? I don't know, I don't care, I'm sitting down. Give me an F, I don't care, right? If you'd have told me back then, Matt, your job will be five times a week, get in front of a bunch of people and talk. I'd have rebuked you as Satan. Get thee behind me. <laughs> and yet it's God's humor. This is what I'm gonna have you do. First Corinthians one. If you think you're not qualified, you are. You better say, God, I am qualified. You better do reverse psychology. I'm the man for you, God. Now I can't use you. <laughs> it's amazing to me what Paul is used to do. It's amazing. Just amazing. So, it just, it spreads out like this huge harvest. And because there's this huge harvest, there's a backlash, chapter 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. I'd love to see that. Is that a perfect church? Man, they are hammering it out right here. And verse five says, but some believers who belong to the group of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So here's a debate. To be a Christian, do you need to keep all the rules and laws of the Old Testament? That's the debate. So it's circumcision, but verse five clarifies it. They're not just talking about circumcision. They're talking about them to keep the law of Moses, right? We don't struggle with circumcision today so much, but it's food you eat or day that you worship or the kind of worship that you do, all those kind of things. They're still hangups for us today. And what I found in looking at church is this. Churches tend to do this. They tend to look at the last 2000 years and then a denomination will like freeze and say, this was the high point of Christianity. 
Calvin's Geneva, high point. Pilgrims, high point. Puritans, high point. And then they freeze doctrine. They freeze even the way that they look and dress. They'll freeze it on that point because that was the high point. And I always talk to him like, listen, if you're gonna freeze it anytime, it's 8032, bro. You need to be walking around a robe. You need to sell your house and give it away just like they did, right? You need to not drive anywhere. You need to walk. Man, you'll fit in Portland, but nowhere else. So, I mean, it's like, why freeze it in the 1800s? Freeze it in 8032. That's the high point, if anywhere. But there's the, the, the idea that I think is wrong is the gospel is always to be contextualized to the culture and to the time. You don't change the message. You just change your methods and your philosophy. Hey, I don't care about that. What I care about is you knowing Jesus. So I'm gonna contextualize it to, and that's what they did. Calvin did it. Puritans did it. Pilgrims did it. And for some reason, well, that's it. We gotta freeze it right there. No way, right? So the big question is, do they, do we need to freeze this thing with Moses? Is that the high point? Well, here's the answer. Peter, this is his cameo. Then he disappears. Peter stood up, verse seven. Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. This is Cornelius. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their heart by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Good answer, Peter. Brilliant. So Peter says, wait a second, time out. No one can keep this thing. No one can keep this. And the problem with religion is this. If you use religion for your sanctification, if you say, okay, I got saved, but now I need religion to actually move me into the things of Jesus. If you use religion for sanctification, when you have a problem, what's the solution? More religion. That's what happened in Israel, right? They had the law, but then they had the Mishnah and then they had the, outside the Mishnah, they had the, they just keep making fences, right? So the Mishnah, I think there's like, Five verses for the Sabbath. The mission has 24 pages. Why? Because they were like, well, that's good, but we need more religion on that. And so it just became this yoke that broke them. So, so what Peter says essentially is this. It's, it, the way I put it is this. Jesus is the deep end. Everything else is the kiddie pool. Circumcision, that's a, get out of the kiddie pool, man. That's weird, you're an adult. Quit waiting in this kiddie pool, right? You hit unnaturally warm spots and someone's gonna call the cops on you. Get in the deep end. Jesus is the deep end, which is what? Peter says, get in the deep end. Brilliant, love it, all right? So then there's a battle. 16, 17, 18, 19 is not just a battle, it's really demonic, right? Chapter 16, verse 16. As we are going to the place of prayer, we are met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She's, she's whacked out. All right, skip forward. Uh, chapter 17, verse 16. Now, while, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. First Corinthians 10, 20 tells us, behind an idol is actually a, 
a demon. There's a power behind that thing. So his spirit, God's spirit in him was provoked like, oh my goodness, I can feel. You ever been somewhere where you just feel it? I've been places in India that I can't explain it, but my skin crawls. I went into a Hindu temple one time and it was just like, ah, whoa, ah, I gotta get out of here. I got, I just like run, run. So it was kind of like that. He could feel it, right? All right, chapter 19, here's the big one. Ephesus, verse 11. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul, I recognize, but who are you? How would you like to be there? I mean, that'd be about as freaky as it gets. I don't know who you guys are. Oh no, bad call. <laughs> and the man in whom the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell on them all. And the name of Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Hardcore. Now this is the clash of kingdom. Kingdom of light, kingdom of darkness. And you begin to see it. Chapter 16, this demon-possessed woman. Chapter 20, or chapter 17, Athens. Chapter 19, in the city of Ephesus. And their response is, we gotta get radical. Paul will write to the same church, Ephesians 4.27. He says, look out. So that Satan doesn't get a toehold. It's topos in the Greek, like a topography map. So he doesn't get a toehold, a place in your heart. Be careful. I think he's actually referencing this right here, that you have to go nuclear sometimes on things that give a toehold to the enemy. Do we have toeholds where the enemy is able to get into our homes? My mom, bless her heart, she had zero tolerance for sin. Zero tolerance. We live in the wrong place in Grants Pass. We called it Felony Flats. You know, stone's throw from the railroad tracks. Not that I ever attempted to prove that it was a stone's throw. Dirt road in front of us, four houses down from us was the neighborhood watch program was watch that neighbor. That was all it was. They sold drugs, they cooked meth. I mean, there was always like a dead carcass sitting out on the front of their porch, like dripping down onto the road. My friends would not walk by it. I'm like, hey, let's go over, let's go to the store. Dude, we're not going that way. It's four blocks around. Yeah, we choose life. We're not going there. So it was just, it was a, just a bad home. And I remember always feeling like when I came into my home, it felt like a lighthouse in the middle of a storm. Like this place is safe because it was zero tolerance. Like I didn't get a, we didn't get a TV till I was a sophomore. And then the TV that we had, we had to bring it out of a closet, set it up and watch it and then take it back in the closet when we were done with it. And we watched, watched like Little House on the Prairie and that was it. And then we started sneaking it out. Like we're gonna watch it when mom's not there or she's asleep, we'd sneak it out. She found out. She had an electrician come, cut the cord, 
put the cord in this like box. It has this big lock on it. Like you could not turn it on unless the key was in and the lock was up. I'm like, you're brilliant, man. And if we're watching a show and mom's watching it and she didn't like it, if there was something, Lord's name was taken in vain, shut it off, keys goes off, it was done. Just that, she had zero tolerance for sin. And I think that's why my home always felt like a lighthouse. Do we have toposes for the enemy? I think we are really, really careful. The, the, uh, you read, it's unbelievable right now. The occult is growing at a rate unparalleled before in history. We have now these movies that celebrate it. Witches and werewolves. And, and now it's, it's seeping in through culture. And I'm not a uh, heebie-jeebie, look out, Hollywood's horrible, whatever. But I'm also, you better be aware, Satan is really good at what he does. And he wants to trap your mind and get you thinking about things you should not and take you down a road and the end is destruction. And you get a place in your heart or a place in your home where he attacks you. Be careful. These people went radical. We're grabbing that junk, those books, that garbage. Now, I know it's worth a lot of money. Each one of these pieces of silver is a day's wage, 50,000 days wages, and they burned it. Doesn't matter how much it costs. Does not matter. Because I'll tell you, sin will always cost you more than you can pay. It will always cost you more than you can pay. They said, I'd rather burn that book and pay that fine. That's what they do. And they have power then, verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Purity always brings power. This old diesel truck, and I know I'm in overtime now, and my diesel truck, every once in a while I get water in that diesel. Not much, but I could tell instantly. It would run so terrible and so rough. Just a little teeny bit of water, no power. Little bit of compromise and the power goes out, right? So last one is breakthrough, super quick. Paul heads to Jerusalem, gets arrested, trial after trial after trial after trial. Death threats, people wanna kill him. They take this, this thing, hey, we will not eat until we kill Paul. Um, they don't kill him. I, I think they're still hungry or they're liars. He gets on a boat, the boat gets wrecked, gets off the boat, starts to make a fire, a poisonous snake bites him. It's just like, it's worse, 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 worse. But then look at this, and then we'll be done. Verse 30, chapter 28. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Victory. Acts ends in victory. Paul now, seemed like he's getting worse, 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 worse. What's going on? All of a sudden, victory. Why did he get victory? Because he persevered. He persevered through trial after trial, demons, this thing, that thing, shipwreck, snake bite. He didn't say, that's it, I'm cashing in. That's it, I'm out. He persevered. I've been convicted in my own heart. Like, do I give up too easy? When something is hard or difficult, do I give up too easy? Oh, we tried that, or I prayed for that. Or, you know, we tried community groups, or we tried that mission. Or we, do we give up too easy? Paul perseveres. He just, no, no, no. And victory. Edgewater, 
persevere. Galatians 6, 9, do not grow weary in well-doing because you will reap a harvest if you faint not. How many people fainted? How many potential Pauls fainted? If they would have only persevered, they would have come to chapter 28, verse 30 and had victory. Persevere. So Jesus, may we be perseverers. May we not give up. May we trust you. And may the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ increase in our hearts, in our homes, and in our city. And I pray this in your name, amen. God bless you guys.